Radio Mano Papachango. intros this week because I'm in a bit of a hurry. Got to check out of this hotel in Phuket, Thailand. Phuket, P-H-U-K-E-T. Not called Fuck It, but uh, it might as well be. It's my least favorite place I've ever been in Thailand. So it's everything I love about Thailand. It seems to be missing here. And uh yeah, it's it's full of tourists. It's like uh I don't know, Cancun, uh frat bro heaven, you know, lots of buckets of beer and rip-offs and crowds and yeah, it's horrible. I'm here because I need to get uh some dental work done and there aren't any uh dentists on the little island where I was hanging out. And this was the nearest big city. So here I am. Uh, hopefully the dentists aren't as shady as uh, the restaurant owners and hotel owners and taxi drivers and everybody else. We'll see what happens. Um, this episode is a very special episode. This was recorded um, in Hawaii a couple of weeks ago where I was visiting um, a man named Tom Sewell. Uh, it was his 80th birthday and I was invited because Tom is an old friend of my buddy Tal Ruspoli, and Tal very generously and kindly um, shared his friend Tom with me and me with Tom, and uh, I think I definitely got the better part of that deal. Um, but I got to hang out uh, at this amazing compound on Maui full of giant metal sculptures um, made from discarded uh, factory pieces um, from um, the sugar mills that are now defunct on the island. Tom salvaged some of these giant chunks of steel and, and um, that were used to make uh, presses and, and other machinery in the sugar mills. Anyway, it's, it's an amazing place. There, uh, I'll put some photographs up on my website as well as links to... Uh, places where you can see more. You can certainly, uh, if you follow Tal Ruspoli on Instagram, you'll see a bunch of his photos from Tom's place. Anyway, this was a fantastic visit for me, a fantastic opportunity to meet Tom and some of his friends and family. And uh, my God, what a what an experience. Tom, uh, I think I mentioned it was his 80th birthday. And just in the last few years, Tom learned that he had uh, children that he didn't know of. I think there was one son he did know about who was there, who I, whom I met. I, I met all of them. But then two other kids that he didn't know about um, that uh, came to light through some very serendipitous and uh, amazing um, coincidences, uh, which we talk about in the conversation. Tom has been leading an incredible life. Uh, you'll hear all about it going from penniless hitching a ride on a private airplane to Brazil when he was a kid 
to walking around with a weapon in his pocket, which um, he talks about, kind of came up as a surprise in the conversation, um, opening art galleries, becoming a leader in the the world of uh, the, the sort of business side of art as well as the creative side of art. Um, he's made a fortune for himself, and he's one of those people, one of those very rare people who have done very well economically in life and uh, have not lost their common sense or their common touch or their common decency, uh, and, and they use their money wisely and to create beauty and happiness for everyone around them. It's um, inspirational to know this man. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Tom Sewell and Tal Ruspoli, who uh, is my sort of co-host this episode, which I really appreciated as they've known each other for years. And, and I would have just been stumbling around in the dark, not knowing the best questions to be asking Tom. But uh, Tal helped me out with that and sort of guided me a little bit. Uh, so that was fantastic. Uh, that's it. I'm not going to talk much more because I want to get this together and get out of this hotel before I get in trouble with the people downstairs. I hope things are going well for you and, uh, you'll hear from me again in uh, a week or less. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for supporting the podcast. Um, if you would like to support economically, throw some a few bucks a month, uh, into keeping this thing afloat, you can do that at my website, thatchrisryan.com. I'm going to play you out this week with uh, something a little different, something I don't do very often. Um, Tom's a classy dude, so I want to class this up a little bit. I listen to a fair bit of classical music, but I don't uh, tend to play it on the podcast. I, I assume most of you aren't that into it. But I'm going to play uh, a short piece by Beethoven um, performed by the Tokyo String Quartet. This is from one of Beethoven's late quartets. I think uh, the last four quartets that he wrote uh, in his life, I think he was totally deaf. Uh, for all of them. And these four quartets are, for my money, some of the most profound music in, that exists. Um, that, that I, for years, I've listened to them late at night when I don't really want to go to sleep, but I just want to be in darkness and, and sort of leave my body and just go into another world. Uh, if you want to listen to true genius and you you want that kind of focus put on some headphones or light a candle and turn out the lights and listen to uh, any of the last four quartets uh, from Beethoven's life this is from opus 130 uh, and I, as I said it's a, a brief movement it's uh, about three and a half minutes uh, just string quartet and I hope you enjoy this and the conversation with Tal Ruspoli and Tom Sewell Catch you next time.
And uh, <laughs> are you rolling? <laughs> I, I, I just started rolling with libido. Oh, um, because he just showed, Tom just showed us a picture of uh, his, one of his mentors, Rubach, who was 100 when I met him. And he said, well, I said, what's the secret to such a long life? And he said, libido. And then the next time I saw him, he was 101 and he was on his deathbed. And he said, actually, the most important thing is love. So it took him from 100 to 101 <laughs> to make that final passage. Well done. <laughs> well, he, he got there. Yeah. <clears throat> Although, I mean, libido and love go together so well. It's like a wine and cheese situation. But they're both good independently as well, I would, I would argue. What's your how, do, how do you feel about that? How important is libido to longevity? By the way, I, just to note, this is your 80th birthday. It's an incredible honor to be speaking to you. I like to call it four score. Four score. It's a yeah. little more biblical. Yeah, exactly. Four score in seven years, right? That's the, right. Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what do you think, Tom? Is, is libido integral to uh, a long and happy life? It always has been in my life. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, part and parcel. Um, yeah, so this podcast is conversational, and anything that comes up that you don't want to talk about, feel free to avoid it. And I can also delete anything. I talk about anything. You it's talk okay. about anything. Yeah. All right. Well, since we started out with libido, uh, we're here. You have three children here. Yes. Who, if I understand correctly, you didn't know you had until quite recently. Is that right? Two of them. Two of them, yes. okay. I had a child, the first time, speaking of libido, the first time I ever had sex with a woman was in Minneapolis. I was 17. My girlfriend was named Carol. She wore white Angora sweaters, beautiful dark hair, thick lips, remarkable girl. And she was the first person I ever made love with. And the first time we ever made love, she got pregnant. So this was Minneapolis, 1950s, mid-50s. I had to marry her. Mm. So we got married and spent about a year together and divorced. She remarried. They adopted my boy and moved. And I moved away. And then they moved away, ended up in Canada. And I didn't see my son for 17 years. Mm. Uh, right. Then I, I did the S training. Uh, with Warner Earhart in, uh, well, 17 years later. And um, I realized that I had an unfinished relationship with my son. And I didn't have exactly what I wanted as a relationship with my father. So I took care of both those things. And your father was still living at this yes. point. Yes. First thing I did was to contact my son, send him letters. Uh, he was 17 at the time. He came to see me in California. Um early 60s and we connected and have been best friends ever since mm. and with my father I didn't feel like we had enough communication and so I bought an old farm derelict farm in Wisconsin and we spent uh, nine months building a uh, solar house together so it was a design my father found on uh, popular science we ordered the plans and we built this house together oh. it was an amazing experience with my dad and so we talked about that for 15 years afterwards until he died. Did he live in the house? No. We just bought it as a project. Oh, okay. And he was living in Minnesota? In Minneapolis, yeah. In Minneapolis. Did, was your father creative? My father was uh, quiet, didn't have a lot of friends, was a Minnesota farm boy, 
went to France in 1917, World War I, uh, came back, uh, drove streetcar in Minneapolis, and uh, my mother was the dynamic one in our family. So uh, my father was a bus driver, carpenter, streetcar driver, quiet man. And what was your mother up to? She was amazing. Piano teacher, doll collector. These are some of her dolls. Oh, yeah. Um, she was the kind of woman that would knock on a door and ask if the house was for sale. Right. That was typical of her. Uh, she had great luck. And you did. I read your this article yes. this morning, right. She says, is this house for sale? It was a beautiful little house by the lake in Minneapolis. The lady said, yes, it's so fortunate that you knocked on our door. We're moving to back to Norway. We need to sell the house. So mother bought it for pennies on the dollar. Right. And we moved in, and it was a lesson for me to be outgoing, to be positive, to take a chance, to meet people. Mm. I would say uh, that was one of the most important lessons in my life. How old were you? Oh, I was probably 13. Right. And it planted the real estate bug in you, too. I it did. It did. <laughs> yeah. Tom made a lot of yeah. very well in real estate. This, most artists don't. <laughs> right. <laughs> in anything. Uh, this is Tal, Tal Ruspoli. Uh, any listener, any really devoted listener to this podcast knows all about Tal. He's been on the podcast several times, and I talk about him probably to... Uh, the point of boring some oh. of the audience members. Tal's mom has been on the podcast. You know, I'm just, just sort of going down the list of people I've met through Tao. Um, and Tao and Tom have known each other for how long? 20 years, I'd say. At least. At least how did yeah. you meet? Was it a mutual project or something in Venice? Through another eccentric creative real estate person even to say re real estate is kind of a weird yeah. Yeah. kind of banalization <laughs> talk about roger slash mona that's how we met but first he should give a little background because he knows roger slash mona for longer than i've been alive mona was living in venice was involved with a group called environmental communications i was fresh from minneapolis i had arrived in 1966 and was um tremendously inspired by what I saw in LA. I saw the LA pop architecture, buildings shaped like hot dogs, donuts, shoes, ladies' feet. I mean, I just loved what I saw. Right. I loved the neon, I loved the art deco, I loved the Egyptian architecture, I loved uh, the uh, freeways. So I started photographing all that stuff, making slide series. And um, then I met Mona and he had a business with uh, David Greenberg and the Greenberg brothers and Ted Tanaka and Bernard Perloff doing the same thing. So we had a nice connection there. Photography. Photography and appreciation of, uh, of the art of L.A. Right. Uh, finding art in unexpected places, which turns out to be my specialty. Mm -hmm. I also, on a fluke, rented a couple of big warehouses in the heart of the ghetto in Venice on Sunset and 4th behind Gold's Gym and cut them up and I had a huge studio for myself and I rented out the other spaces to artists. I was renting for a dollar or for 10 cents a square foot and I subleased for a dollar a square foot. So I had a five-year lease and I was able to fill the buildings with fabulous artists and have my own art studio. Uh, Mona uh, Roger Mona saw what I was doing and said, if you ever want to buy a building, let's, let's buy one together. Mm. We haven't gotten into real estate. Mm. 
So my neighbor next door to me was a marvelous fellow named Michael Hernandez. Super positive, walked on the beach every morning with tapes playing, inspirational tapes, and did workshops and seminars. And he was really super focused on success. And somehow that rubbed off on me. <laughs> and I was lucky enough that he came to me one day and he said, there's a building on what's now Abbott Kenny. It was then called West Washington Boulevard. He said, there's a building there, an old supermarket, 5,000 square feet. You can buy for $40,000. Seemed like a lot of money to me at the time. Yeah. He said, you can get it for 10% down. So I went to Roger and I said, I'm going to buy this building. Do you want to buy it with me? So we each kicked in a couple of thousand dollars. I borrowed my 2000 from a house painter. And we started our business, Sewell and Webster, which has been going now for 50 years. That same building is probably worth forty million. Right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. The building. Unfortunately, the, I sold it. But and the idea was to do this artist studios well, again. Or? We didn't know what we were going to do, huh. so um, I decided. First of all, I went up and I kicked out the ceiling. It was a plaster lath ceiling, and I exposed this magnificent bow truss ceiling of the of the building with hidden skylights. And hmm. It was amazing, and. Um, I decided to call the place the supermarket, and I started cutting that up and leasing it because I'd heard that that's the best way to rent property is to make smaller spaces and charge mm. more money. So we filled it with all sorts of interesting people and, and had a few artist studios. Linda Banglis, the famous artist, was one of our tenants. <clears throat> I'd met the Oingo Boingo, uh, and I let them have some space there for their rehearsal and ended up uh, leasing a little space for them on the upper space for an apartment. And w Roger and I became uh, uh, interested in the development of, of spaces that were not valuable, creating value where there was none. Which aligns with finding art in unlikely places. Exactly, yeah. How would you differentiate art from beauty? Because when I look at your work, it occurred to me you find beauty in unlikely places like a sugar factory. Um, but how is, you said, finding art in unlikely places? Well, I think that my main mentor was Marcel Duchamp. And one of the things I got from him was the ability of an artist to uh, dictate what is art mm. and to identify something. Right. So that's sort of my pedigree so it becomes art through the recognition of the beauty within it yes i, I mean see. when i've walked into the sugar mill for the first time in my life the sugar mill was the most dangerous uh s space on maui it was loud it was polluted it was no i mean it was full of asbestos it was incredibly dangerous and yet I saw the sparks flying, I saw the patinas, I saw the huge shapes, I saw the men working, I saw the light, shafts of light coming in from the hole in the ceiling. Uh, I loved it. Yeah. It Do was you ever, a gold mine for me. So I started quite literally, like Sebastian Salgado, I'm sure you're familiar sure. with him, similarly finds beauty in, in horrific situations, yes. including gold mines, yes. literal gold mines. Yes. Um, do you ever think that sometimes I think this sort of predilection toward gratitude and uh, appreciation of beauty, even in the least likely of circumstances, is both 
like the saving grace of humanity and also potentially our downfall in that we become accustomed to anything. That's a little heavy for me. I don't know how to respond to that. Yeah. Yeah. I just published a book called Civilized to Death, so that's where my head is at right now. <laughs> we'll gloss over that. Read that and get back. Yeah. <laughs> You've always been so bold, though. Can you tell the story of, of, of buying your second building and moving everybody and the, the, pro- the protests that ensued? Oh, sure. Well, uh, Roger was, uh, I think, down in Mexico or playing his guitar or something, and, and um, another building came available. And that was an unusual one. That was an old bank building on Windward and Pacific. Um, Pacific and Windward. It was the security, in the old days, the Security Pacific Bank building. Then it became a station for the train, I think. Arched building with marvelous arches, Italian style. One night on a full moon, I was uh, couldn't sleep. I got up. I was living on Ironsides on the Marina Peninsula, and I walked up the beach to Windward and came up Windward, and there was a sign on this building for sale. I jotted the name down and the number, and the next day I called, and it was a man named Lee Ford selling this building. He was a realtor. Gave me a price. I don't remember what it was at the time, but it it seemed to me astronomical. And uh, I made an offer. I said, I'll give you $65,000 for the building, and he laughed. I said, just keep my number. A year and a half later, he called me. He said, the building is yours. I said, which building? He said, well, the one, you know. I said, oh, my God, great. So I told Roger, I said, I'm going to buy this building. Do you want to come in on it with me? He said, fine. So we bought this building. And then I I decided to move our whole gang at the supermarket over to Windward Avenue. Just picked everybody up and moved them over there. Everyone who had leased yes. space. During the weekend, right? While they weren't there. During, yeah. <laughs> And then... Wait, wait. Uh, how, why? It's just wild. I, Did I you thought, want to sell the supermarket? No, I, I just wanted to have... The more, I thought that's where the energy was. So I wanted to move everybody over there. It was a pretty bold and dynamic and unconventional move, I know. Illegal. <laughs> so illegal. I, I called the place the Venice Flea Market. And I had just met the Oingo Boingo, Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. So what, what is Oingo Boingo? Oingo I, I know the website Oingo Boingo, you know, but no, I've the never... The Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo were an incredible uh, musical you, you group that was... You should either hold this or oh, no, sit no, closer, closer to the, the table. I thought I was projecting Rick enough. Elfman. No. Rick Elfman and his wife, Marie Elfman, uh-huh. and Gene Cunningham, and a couple of other people... Uh, Rick had been in Paris studying or playing with the Magic Circus on the streets of Paris, came back to L.A., put together a little group. They called it the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. I was in Hollywood at the, the first time they ever played at the Paradise Ballroom on Le Pier. It was a big ballroom. Um, and I filmed them, and I got to know them. Hmm. And later, Danny Elfman, Rick's brother, joined the group. So I thought they were the funnest things I'd ever seen. Was it performance art? Performance, playing old accordions and Uh. and kazoos and uh, guitars and drums. And they were wonderful. Old Avalon, old tunes, Cab Calloway tunes. They were Uh. really interesting. They wore old dinner jackets, white dinner jackets and and hats. And Marie Mm. had a funny little hat with a veil on it. So they were extraordinary. And I grabbed them, took them all to Venice and had them at the opening of our flea market Mm. and people started protesting what we were doing 
right, they looked at at uh, at us as developers. I didn't even think about gentrification or developing. I was just having fun, mm-hmm. finding value where there was none, creating space that people wanted to be in. And so they started protesting. And I remember the opening of the flea market. There were people out there with balloons. And the balloons said, Sewell sucks, Webster maybe. And they were just shouting and screaming at us. Tom being Sewell. Yeah. And Roger being Webster. But he was out of town, so they didn't know if they should blame him or not. (laughs) So the sign said, Sewell sucks and Webster maybe. That's a good sign. There was no hand in there. It was Sewell sucks. Webster, maybe. Or maybe Sewell sucks Webster. <laughs> See, that's right, way. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So that was the beginning of the of the adventure of Venice. Yeah. And the excitement of doing things in Venice, a dangerous place. Uh, people were afraid of the streets might get wide, you know, they might widen the street, the, uh, brick buildings, earthquake problems everybody thought we were crazy were there still uh, more canals in venice at that and there point? were plenty of canals mm. yeah but it was it was a touchy area a lot of people didn't want to invest they didn't want to get involved but i didn't care i loved it i had such a great time so you were willing to lose everything just to have fun. i had nothing to lose yeah so we just played was there anything looking back at your childhood was there anything that pre or uh, i don't know that an early echo of this did you set up parties for your friends for example or have a tree house or something thing was i created a gallery in 1962 called the bottega gallery Mm. Um, i had a friend that i'd worked with at dayton's department store when i was a display man named terry riggs it's a homeless man sleeping in his car and a couple of kids alcoholic but he started this one-room gallery called Bottega. He didn't even call it a Bottega. He just started a one-room gallery. So I went and helped him. And one day he never showed up. The place was rented for a month, and I had the place. Was he an artist? He was an artist and a kind of an entrepreneur. Hmm. But he just disappeared, and I've never known what happened to him. Oh, really? So I ended up with the gallery. I had been in a gallery in Wichita, Kansas, called the Bottega, because when I was... 20 working as a display man at Dayton's department store I heard about Brasilia and the new capital city and how people were making fortunes so I said that's what I want to do I want to make a fortune overnight (laughs) so my mother drove me to Wichita Uh and I stayed there for six months and I'd heard that people rent uh, that people buy Cessnas the Brazilian ranchers bought Cessnas and, and flew them down to Brazil because their ranches were so big so I ended up hitchhiking each day at the Cessna factory and I finally met a pilot a rancher that would take me back with him to, Bra- to Brazil but in the meantime I was living in this gallery called Bottega and I met three artists, and they were very influential in my life. They got me into photography. They lent me a, a Nikon camera, and I started taking pictures of junkyards. Mm. So you immediately went to the junkyard? Yeah. Not to the fancy... No, I went to the junkyard. Still life. Yeah, these are my first photographs. I have them in my archives. So you were just drawn... Drawn there for some reason, yeah. Yeah, it's what, counterintuitive. You're drawn toward what most people would call ugly. That's right. Yeah. And what happened with the Cessna and going to Brazil? So I got in the Cessna, and the two of us, me and the pilot, flew to Brazil. It took 10 days. We stopped in Miami and then down through uh, Jamaica, uh, flew over Santo Domingo, Cuba. 
uh, all through the Guianas, British, Dutch, and French Guiana, each place stopping at night to get gas and to continue our flights. So 10 days, 12 days in the in the Cessna. And how old are you? Uh, 20. And we ended up in, in Aracatuba, Sao Paulo, part of Brazil. And I worked on the... the as a gaucho on the uh, big ranch. On his ranch. Uh-huh. And then I went to Sao Paulo, the big city, and was a playboy with his nephew, a very wealthy young nephew with a, a hot car, a Chevrolet convertible. And uh, that was fun for a while. That wore thin, uh, speaking of libido. And then we, <laughs> we, I went to um, Brasilia yeah. and ended up in Rio de Janeiro, which yeah. I thought was very charming. I love the architecture, the music. The, um, I went to the National School of Fine Arts there for a little while to study sculpture. And you picked up Portuguese. And- picked up some Portuguese. Yeah. And then I created a job for myself. It was There was an English language newspaper called the Brazil Herald. And I walked in and I told them that I'd been working for the Minneapolis Star and Tribune, uh, which is true. I didn't tell them I was a paper boy, but <laughs> they hired me to yeah. do a column uh-huh. every day. I called it personal mention. So I was like a lounge lizard. I'd go to all the big hotels on Copacabana, and I'd meet people that spoke English, and I'd write stories about them, Uh and I'd publish them the next day. So that was my job. They call that a podcast now. Right. (laughs) And and that was fun. I really enjoyed it. And then I finally at War Thin, being in Brazil, and I came back, went to the University of Minnesota for a year. And what did you study? And I studied uh, a multitude of things, but the one thing that turned me on was art, and I studied with a man named uh, Ernest Gombrich, a, a writer, very interesting guy. And I somehow ended up at the, at the Minneapolis Institute of Arts. And I walked in, and I was so impressed with the place. I knocked on the director's door, who had been responsible for the new design of the interiors. And I told him I was going to be his new assistant, that he didn't have to pay me, that I was going to work for him. And mm-hmm. I said, I'm sure he'd like me. So I took this job. And that kind of got me into the art world. Then I how did you support yourself? Uh, hand to mouth. Sometimes I rob things, and I'd do armed robberies, and I'd steal from department stores. Armed robberies? Yes. With a pistol? Yeah. And I went with a friend once with a sh- with a, a shotgun, and he held up a liquor store. I mean, I'm not proud of it, obviously, but. Uh, that was part of my life. I had no sense of right or wrong. It was a strange period of time for me. I got a lot of excitement out of doing crime. Yeah. And it Did just, you, you ever get caught? Uh, just minor things, you know, stealing tires from the police garage and maybe a little shoplifting, but I never did time. You never got caught with a gun in your and pocket. I never got caught with a gun, thank yeah, God. Yeah. I mean, I was right on the edge. I could have spent my life in, in prison, actually, the way I was. Yeah. But it did give me compassion for young people today, uh, yeah. knowing that we can all change. And people on the edge, whatever the edge is, no matter how exactly. old they are. What, you said you did, you had no sense of right and wrong. Wh- why? I don't know why. I just didn't have it. it was that a, a, a brief period in just which it period. left? You'd had it as a child and growing up? I don't or? know if I had it as a child, but I certainly didn't have it in my teen years. Hmm. And... Um, had no sense of you know I, 
I go into a gas station and the guy's out there pumping gas and I open up his cash register and take all the money. I mean, it's stuff like that. And was I, it just you saw an opportunity and you took it or did you feel justified? Like, no, I no, should have that money. No it's not fair. I just something about the excitement of it thrilled me. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Breaking the rules. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are there other areas in your life where you consider yourself a rule breaker, where oh, you've con- persisted with this? In art, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've been entering Art Maui for the last 25 years, which is our biggest show here on Maui. Yeah. They have a juror, sometimes a judge, sometimes three or four jurors, and everyone's allowed to enter pieces. And um, I mean, I, I'm always breaking the rules. They, they're always upset with me for some reason or other. My pieces are either too large or too noisy or too uh, weird or something, they're showing nipples or who God, God only knows mm. what rule I'm breaking. But yeah. um, that I get a, still get a kick out of that. Sometimes I feel like um, if everyone knew how easy it was to get by breaking the rules, the world would break down. So it's kind of like if if you started thinking of money as just pieces of paper, it would lose all its value. And it's good It's good for the few of us who get away with it that most people don't know how easy it is. Could be. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like there, I don't know, it's like there. there's like a, a, a tree where you can eat the fruit, but everyone else thinks it's poison, right. so we can waltz through the world eating the fruit. It's a st- strange thing. Well, in a way, Duchamp was like that. You know, when Duchamp would... Uh, Take a, buy a urinal in a plumbing supply store and turn it upside down and sign it and enter it, call it a fountain. Yeah. I mean, that's breaking And sell it for a fortune. Well, I, I don't hope. think he sold things. Oh, he didn't no, sell things. Oh. At that point. But he just created art, breaking rules. Yeah. Um, he'd, uh, you know, take a postcard of the Mona Lisa and put a mustache on it and a little goatee and put Elash Oku under it. The, the age of... The letters... L-H-O-O-Q, oh. pronounced in French, is L-H-O-O-Q, which means she's hot in the ass. I mean, <laughs> about breaking rules with the Mona Lisa. So do you, do you think that this is a primary function of art, or is this just the realm that you're interested this in? This is what I'm interested in. So you don't think it's that one of the main purposes of art is I to break rules. I would be so bold as to try to assume what the main purpose of art is. Yeah, I can well, only speak on for myself, and I'm having a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, Tao's father, as you know, was friends with Salvador Dali. Sure. And I imagine there are all sorts of, uh, there's a web of interconnectivity there. Yes. Did you ever meet him? I did. I met him at the St. Regis Hotel and um, photographed him and... Uh, was quite taken by him. He was mm. came walking out of the elevator with a big fur coat on and his gold cane and uh, said, bonjour. And uh, I was uh, probably 21 uh. and uh, knew that he was at the St. Regis. Were you there uh, on an assignment? or No assignments. I've never really had many assignments. Uh. But I was just feeling my way around the world right. and experiencing as much as I could. Right, yeah. So 21, were you still in the age of uh, no right and wrong? Uh, no, I was past that. What what pulled you out of that? Uh, getting married, I think, having oh, a child. Oh, right. That's yeah. when you had the child. Yeah. Well, you had the child at 17, right? Yes. Yeah. And you, okay, I'm, I'm, the chronology is so 
packed. You how old you went to Brazil when you were twenty? Twenty. Okay, so that was after that. But we were talking about the Bottega Gallery. Yeah, right. That's when I really turned on fire. I was just I exploded at the Bottega Gallery. It was twenty two. I was doing art myself. I was having shows of other artists, and I expanded the gallery to be a huge gallery. It must have been 3,000 square feet by the time Hmm. I finished. And the most fun I had was, the first show I did was called a Salon de Refuse. There was a big show at the Minneapolis Institute of Arts. They rejected a whole bunch of art. I decided to do a Salon de Refuse and accept everything that had been rejected. Hmm. That was my entree into the world of art in Minneapolis. All the artists came to my gallery. I put on a huge show, tremendous success, a lot of publicity, and it sort of established me as a presence in in art in Minneapolis. Such a good idea too, because of the connections it gives you to the to everyone in the art world. It was fabulous. Who's feeling rejected, and yeah. now you give them some love. Right. Such a smart move. And my brother helped me with science. My mother brought up a big service of lemonade and my dad helped me make things oh that's great and, um then i didn't duchamp come visit you well, at the gallery i'm writing a story right now about my dinner with duchamp um i decided to do an uh, several exhibitions i put a little catalog together and um one of the shows i'd prepared was uh, found art so i talked to my assistant, Rita, this marvelous young woman working with me. I said, Rita, let's send a letter to Duchamp. I found out that he wasn't dead. I assumed he was dead. He was so famous. I said, and I found his address. I said, let's send a letter to Duchamp and invite him to come and enter a piece in this found out show. Just a fluke. Again, knock on a door. Knock on the door. I get a, I get a letter back from Duchamp. He says, thank you so much for the invitation. I'd sent him this catalog, and it's got a picture of the urinal and everything on it, Duchamp. He said, I don't make art anymore, but I'll enter myself in your show. (laughs) He said, I'm coming to Minneapolis. I'll call you when I arrive. (laughs) I had an old 1950 Daimler at the time, automobile black with brown fenders, suicide doors, leather lining, and a, f- a, a horsehair blanket for the front seat. I went to his hotel and picked him up. He sat in the front seat, his wife Teeny in the back seat, and I took him to my gallery. And Duchamp and I really hit it off. We started out with a joke on my assistant, Rita. I said, Marcel, I'm going to drop you off. I'll park the car. You go up. Tell my assistant you want to maybe show her some of your art there. She's trained to say no to everybody. <laughs> so I park the car. I go up. And she's telling him to, to certainly buzz don't off. accept any yeah. art to buzz off. And I said, Rita, meet Marcel Duchamp. <laughs> she runs in a closet and hides for about 10 minutes. <laughs> but... Marcel looks around. He looks at the found art show. And he asks me a few questions. He wants to know if anything's selling. And um, he sits down. And I've got a whole stack of, of erotic collages that I just had a show of my work. They were about um, 
a foot and a half high and 18 inches, about, about that size, foot and a half by foot and a half. And they were all, I cut out some girly magazines and I've cut a razor blade and I cut out and I put in things from fashion magazines and they're all very erotic. I call them 60 second rapid erotic art. He looks at him with his wife. The first thing he says, there sure are a lot of C-U-N-T-S. And he giggles and his he wife spells, it out. spells <laughs> it out. And he's looking at him. He says, could I have one of these? And I said, surely. So he takes one. He says, could I have another one to give to my friend Max Ernst that remind <laughs> me what he did as a young man? He says, these collages are marvelous. He said, it's the freshest art I've seen in years. Marcel Duchamp is saying that to me. I think, my goodness, this is great. He ends up spending the whole afternoon and half of the, most of the evening with me. We have dinner together. I ordered food from downstairs, the, the Cafe de Napoli, and we sit looking out the window. Uh, Rita puts on an old wind-up phonograph that I have, and we play old 20s music, and we're watching the people on the street kind of walk to the music, hmm. laughing and joking. and It was probably the, the highlight of my life, hmm. meeting Duchamp and having him acknowledge my art encouraging me. He invited me to come to New York. I unfortunately never did. I went to California instead. Mm -hmm. But um, somehow that meeting uh, still resonates to this day. To, to have that marvelous connection and to have that fun relationship with Duchamp and to have that encouragement. Yeah. Quite unlike my father, who had seen my show, and he says, Tom... It feels like someone had stabbed me in the stomach with a knife and turned the blade to look at your artwork. This was just too much for my father. Was it the eroticism? Yeah. yeah. He, he was religious? No, but just was not supportive of it. Right. And he was... Um, it wasn't a commentary on the aesthetic. No, he wouldn't talk about aesthetics. He just, I think the erotic content really disturbed him hmm. but it's an example of how we go through life and if our, our parents don't approve of us we find other people yeah we find other find mentors we find substitute fathers we find people that we relate to and we don't worry about it you ever heard the expression we live our parents unlived lives um that i don't think that relates to me but it does to some people. Yeah. yeah. Was Duchamp your first uh, mentor? No, my first mentor was Joe Wright at Dayton's department store. I had a great job decorating windows and mannequins and um, interior displays. And this man that I worked for was named Joseph Wright. Fabulous man. Mm. Extremely well-dressed. One eye went one way, one eye went the other way. And he was civilized. He he knew European art history. He lived in a beautiful old house with his mm. wife and children, even though he was gay. Did he own the store? No, he was just the display director. Uh -huh. But that store, Dayton's, 12 stories high, family-owned store. He ran that store. That he, he had people come in from New York to do special windows at Christmas time. And he'd go to Europe, then he'd photograph whole little towns and they recreate them in the store mm. on the main floor flower vendors and accordion players and i just learned so much from him yeah and i saw his style he had a big desk white office big desk with a giant taj mahal 
uh, birdcage with a black crow in it. And he'd have lunches <laughs> up on the 12th floor on the wow. old grill at a big round table. And sometimes he'd invite me to join him. And he was openly gay? Uh, no. No. Closet. Uh, yeah. But it was just something about this man impressed me. Yeah. So aside from my older brother, Don, was an early mentor. Joe Wright was a mentor. Uh, Duchamp was a mentor. Martin uh, Freeman, uh, who was the director of the Walker Art Center, was also a, a type of mentor for me. He created the Walker Art Center and all the things. In fact, they had a Duchamp show there. That's why Duchamp came to Minneapolis. Um, so those are some of my early mentors. Uh, then in the gallery, one day, a man walks up the steps. It was a second-story gallery. And he introduces himself. His name is Basil Langton. He was a photographer, artist, director, actor. Very nice man. His wife was an actress at the Guthrie Theater. And he saw what I was doing. He saw my collages. He saw my artwork. He started photographing me. He was kind of a stringer for Life magazine at the time. And we became friends. And Basil uh, became... Probably my, aside from Duchamp, Basil became my most important mentor. We corresponded for 38 years. Mm -hmm. I have a huge book of our correspondence. The collages we sent each other, he, he would send me effusages where he'd take a magazine photograph of women usually and he'd erase 90% of it and then draw it back in with his own hand. Mm. And he did incredible work. So Langton and I had this electric, creative correspondence. He turned me on to the Dalai Lama, to Ram Das, to Lao Tzu, to uh, all sorts of writers and, and uh, artists, Rothko and uh, Giacometti. And, I mean, he just, here I was, 23 years old, and he's turning me on to the, the world of art, the mm. world of literature, and we're carrying out this phenomenal correspondence it was profound the book i have is just beautiful of mm. what we sent each other that's a special kind of relationship oh, isn't it's it it's totally unique yeah and i know that mentors are important to you in general i, I saw the book of mentors in your studio yes that's the book of of, of uh, basil langton i'm mentors are important muses are important partners are important. What's the difference between a muse and a mentor? Well, a muse is usually a woman for me. Yeah. And um, it can be, you know, artistic, not necessarily sexual, but artistic and um, stimulating. So mm. I have lots of muses. Thank God my wife is so liberal and allows me to have all sorts of muses. To be amused. She's, right? <laughs> she feels comfortable in our relationship and yeah. she appreciates you know what i get from muses sure so i have a, chloe was one of my major muses french girl uh lived in uh, lille in the north of france and i met her in uh, in india and uh, she became like the super important muse for me and we're still very good friends michelle and i see her every year when we go to europe that's great and, and i i don't think we can communicate it's hard without images to communicate how wild and eccentric these guys were at the time. Like when I met Roger Webster, it's really you can't fit them into this bubble of like, uh, 
either art or gallerists or real estate people or uh, Roger you have to imagine had like 10 inch long fingernails when I met him <laughs> and 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 wore like you know women's bras underneath and had his piercings everywhere and mm. and he had come to Venice uh, you know and 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 again started buying these buildings for like with a couple of thousands dollars of borrowed money and doing these amazing things and I had been uh, my mother had, I don't know, I probably told this story in one of the podcasts about getting, uh, losing our house because my mother had married a, a, a con artist. And so I, a friend of mine turned me on to Roger Webster, said, you've got to talk to this guy because he might help you save your house because I was losing my house. Right. And um, and you were very young at that point. Yeah, I was just out of college. And uh, and Roger and I, he became like an advisor and mentor to me because he was, before we had cell phones with cameras in them, he had a, one of the first digital cameras and he was taking thousands of photos every day which at the time was outrageous i used to say wow he's got like 10,000 photographs in his computer it seemed like so yeah. crazy and and he and this group environmental communications they had like shot 500,000 slides documenting art architecture and environment around the country and they had an rv a lot like mine one of these old gmcs and they travel around the country documenting and uh, you know creating these slide series and Roger and I became such good friends. I, he didn't end up helping me, you know, not lose my house. We lost the house. I became homeless. I moved into the bus. Roger moved into the bus with me. And um, and we traveled around and lived in this bus together for like eight months. Wow. Uh, traveling around, went to Burning Man in 2001. And then we get back and I'm still homeless. And so he says, you can park the bus in the gas company building, which was behind the Rose Cafe. It's now Google, right? And um, <laughs> and so I'm, I've change. got my bus parked and living in it. And Roger one day says, you've got to meet my partner, Tom. He's the guy I own a lot of these buildings with. And Tom appears and you know, immediately became a huge, like, inspiration to me. And like he, you talked about adopting fathers. Uh, mm. I had a faraway father. Yeah. And in a way, you know, Roger maybe was more like a mother. Because <laughs> then Roger changed his name to Mona and now is pretty much only identifies as a woman. At the time, there was now there's trans rights and all of this stuff happening. But there, I don't think he identified as such. He just liked to wear women's clothes. And he did it in secret underneath his men's clothes for a while. And then slowly they started to come out. He had the long fingernails. And then slowly, then he saw a real estate sign that said, ask for Mona. And he's like, that's my name, Mona now. Mm. So like our, his friends would, he'd ask, start asking his friends to call him as Mona as a nickname. It wasn't like even, he was still both, you right. know? Uh, right. Still, we refer to him as he, sometimes she. Uh, it, it was all before the, 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 the cast had been set for these yeah. identities. Right. Um, this is like, you know, 20 years ago. Anyway, Tom appeared in my life as I was living in the bus, parked in the Rose Cafe parking lot. And he had you know, this like long scarf that he had just, he'd gotten a printer where you could print photos on the, onto, onto fabric. So all his photos of this beautiful, like it was probably, I think it might've been this image of Bomarzo, which uh, the great monster park that was designed by my great, 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 great with 11 greats grandfather in Italy, which Tom went to before I was born and photographed. But um, anyway, long story short, Tom <laughs> appeared and became very quickly uh, a mentor to me as well and the way he mixed kind of lifestyle photography documentary 
a, a love of modernism in design and in architecture and a desire to kind of uncover uh, uh, places that had, you know, were just, it's an interesting controversy now, like uncovering a place that is, you know, artists are just beginning to discover, you know, mm. and then that, that whole wave of, you know, creativity followed by gentrification, which we could probably have a whole podcast about. Yeah. It'd be interesting to ask Tom Would, about. I anyway, mean, background. No, it, and it's all, <laughs> it's all so, so enlightening, you know. I, I remember when I was a young guy and I had mentors and I, you know, had very strong imposter syndrome, as I think we all do at that age, thinking like, why are they interested in investing so much of their time and energy in me? I couldn't understand it. What do you call that? Imposter syndrome. Like, I don't deserve this. Really? Yeah. I never felt that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did, uh, to some extent. I mean, there, there was part of me that thought I'm smarter than the other the other students in this class. So, of course, they're investing in me. But and, and But I talked about it openly. But... Which brings to the, the the question I wanted to ask you: If there was a pivot in your life where you went from being mentored primarily to being the mentor primarily, primarily? Yes, I've had a long history of of working with interns. They go back um, forty years. <coughs> where I I love working with young people. Right now, I have a really a good relationship with the University of Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Uh, they send me interns every quarter. So I usually have three interns from the University of Cincinnati. They come to ostensibly learn about architecture and photography and, and art and filmmaking and maybe sculpture. But they learn a lot more than that. They learn the art of conversation. Mm. They learn about poetry. Right. They come to my film club. Every Monday night, we show films and discuss them. We've been doing that for 11 years. We've seen 450 films. They come to my swim club. We swim in the mornings. We eat good food. We exercise. Uh, They see the value of friends because we have a wonderful, as you see, a wonderful uh, mix of friends coming to our property all the time. They'll sit and have dinner with us with a cellist from Prague or an architect from Tokyo or somebody from South America. I also get a lot of interns from South America, from Buenos Aires, from Argentina. So I have a continual flow of, of interns working with me, and it's always a phenomenal experience. How do you choose them? Uh, we look at their in, their resumes. We uh, Skype them, see if my wife is always encouraging me to look for a spark in their eye. Mm. You know? We try to get people that are healthy, um, and we just take a chance on some people. But it will look at their resume, what they've done, and so forth. And my assistant, uh, Taylor, helps me. He usually interviews them first. Mm. And um, they come. We give them a cottage. And um, we work in the studio four days a week. We're in Maui, by the way. Yeah, we're in Maui. <laughs> we haven't set the stage. Is it in I'm Maui or on, on Maui? Maui. I, I never I, know right? what to say. Yeah, it's, yeah. It does make a difference because they really, coming to, from Cincinnati, coming <laughs> to Maui is a, it's big, a long big ways. deal. Yeah. For some of them, it's scary. Yeah, I'll bet. You know, the insects and the hot sun. and uh, But most of them have a life-changing experience. Yeah. They're really, truly life-changing. I mean, I get letters... 
Jeff Jones was one of my interns from Cincinnati. He sent me the most amazing letter. I just cry every time I read it. It's on my website under my on my on my uh, website under interns. TomSewell.com. TomSewell.com. Yeah, he he totally transformed. He was showed up. He was shy and hunched over, and my wife kept straightening up and straightening him up. He didn't eat any real food. He'd eat out of Mm. cans and things, and we got him eating proper food and swimming in the ocean and i have all my my interns do a talk before they leave yeah uh, it's like a ted talk i call it a tom talk <laughs> they do a little like a 10 minute talk about uh-huh. something they're passionate just about. to the group here well i invite people in uh-huh. and so we'll have a, a crowd come and that's always fun and jeff did a great talk on on bruce goff the architect eccentric architect from oklahoma uh, but it was just wonderful to see this young fellow change yeah and now he's super successful doing really well that's great we had one of the guys last night at my uh, when i did my enigma with uh, Georgi, the cellist from moscow one of my old interns came uh that and joined us he was here eight years ago that's beautiful yeah Tom's you know it's got a, it's a great example of how you want to be i think when you grow up if we ever grow up Part of that is not growing up, obviously, but uh, Tom's turns 80 today, and I don't think you look a day over 60, and he's jumping around. Yesterday, we had this, we, he got us all to set up this tent, and, yeah. and, and, and everyone was tired everyone else and trying to give up, to. Yeah, and yeah. he's just there, and, 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 and doing project after project after project. And again, I think it's this integration of life and art and community, which yeah. I think is a huge inspiration to me and to everyone who comes into contact with you. Yeah. And and then to the 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 commitment to good health. Tom's never had a, a drop of alcohol. He's never tried any drugs. He's never never uh, had a beer, never had a glass of wine. And uh and there's you know obviously there's there's people who choose different paths that also you know, thrive, but as a as an inspiration to stay, you know, to take care of the body as a as a temple and to live one's art and to like mix it with community and with uh, and with a sense of place and architecture and and documenting everything. I found this a, a huge, huge inspiration. Thank you, Tell. My wife, my I have to compliment my wife and give her credit for the fact that she has opened our home to community and. Mm. Uh, right now she's preparing, you know, the table for a dinner for 14 people. Um, she's really gotten on the bandwagon and really participates and welcomes people in. Yeah, yeah. And has welcomed all my friends and my mentors. She's it's, welcomed friends of your friends. Exactly. I can attest to that. <laughs> she's amazing. She's very welcoming. I mean, yeah. the day she went around, she's cleaning the cottages. She's organizing beds in the art barn and she's... She's she's amazing. We were on our way to a Marriott, and she talked us out of it. So, uh, yeah, kudos to her. Michelle Sewell. And she's a stager of houses that are for sale. And she's got a niche for herself Mm. that's profound. She's the best on the island. She creates spaces as well. When someone wants to sell a house, they hire Michelle to come in and decorate it. Right. And she ends up being a decorator for a lot of people that buy the houses then. Yeah. So I'm... I'm blessed having the perfect wife. You know, the point I was uh, sort of hinting at earlier, which the two of you just beautifully illustrated, is that as a young person, I wondered why the older person invested in me. And now that I'm the older person and occasionally have a chance to invest in someone younger, I realize how gratifying it is. Yeah. You know, you talked about the letter you got oh, from... Yeah. 
the intern, and, yeah. and I'm sure you've gotten lots of letters yeah. from lots of interns. And yeah. the, what the young people often don't understand, or at least I did, and maybe you did, was that the relationship feels as if the flow is one directional, but it's actually going in both directions. Basil talked about that hmm. in my book. You'll see how he talked about the relationship, how we both gave and what we got from each other, what we gave to each other. He said that seeing the collages that I did inspired him to do artwork. And so mm. we, 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 it was a mutual benefit. And also, as I don't know if you feel this, but I feel getting older and you have, you know, maybe there's less time, there's less energy. You want to invest it wisely. Mm -hmm. You want to invest it in someone who's going to multiply it and replicate it and send it out into the world, as Tao is doing, for example. Um, you know, I'm influenced by Tao. Like I'm, he's my one mentor that I have that's younger than me. <laughs> that's fantastic. I'm I'm flattered. That's beautiful. <laughs> Hardly um, though. Look, it's a very special day and very busy. I would dominate your time for hours Sorry. and hours, but I don't want to uh, be impolite here. Is there anything that you wanted to cover, Tao? That. Uh, I mean, in, I think Tom, Tom has enormous number of stories and, and experiences that we obviously we've just scratched the surface, but I do encourage people to go to his website and if possible to reach, you know, to, to meet him in person, um, you know, maybe in the next 30, 40 years. Just drop by. Um, <laughs> find a way <laughs> to meet him door. because he's, he's just that fountain of creativity and, 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 and his films on Venice in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s are incredible. He did a magazine for many years. He did, I mean, so many, so much creative output. If I just in front of me, I'm seeing his dream journals, which occupy volumes and volumes and volumes just while he's sleeping, he's being creative. So, yeah. um, <laughs> well, most of us are just, you know, maybe having, fleeting images that we forget as right. the moment we wake up uh oh yeah tell this story tom the, so, one, of the, one of the millions of things in this incredible archive but go to tomsoul.com and if you're inspired as as i have been by his work you know marcel duchamp deep. that's the tie i had on when i when duchamp and i had dinner together and we spent the day together and he signed my necktie Turning me into a work of art. <laughs> exactly. After entering himself in your show. Exactly. Yeah. And what's this tie? This is a man raised wife signed that tie. And then here's a kind of an interesting little story. Traveling through Europe in 76, I went to uh, Milano and I wanted to meet Man Ray's dealer, Luciano Alsomino. And I uh, went to his studio, and we became friends. He was actually hitting on me. He, he tried to get me to s snort cocaine with him. But he was a very interesting guy, and he gave me a book by Man Ray called 1929. It's a book that's um, a limited edition. This is number six. And it's a series of photographs of Man Ray with Kiki of Montparnasse. Four erotic photos and four erotic poems, each representing the, one of the seasons. And this was an amazing work of art. Here's Man Ray 
With his cock and Kiki's Mon Ray's penis. And Kiki de Montparnasse's mouth. Kiki de Montparnasse. See, we, I think before we wrap up, I think that we, we, we started out with, with talk of libido. Uh, here we are, three men, you know, who have, have probably, you know, been defined in part by our strong libidos and thought, thinking about libido. You've written about it extensively. Um, you know, in this day and age, I think we all have a, to have a very kind of careful look at it as a force i try and think i think of it like fire in a way like you can it can be used to burn the house down or it can be used to keep people warm Uh, that's been my kind of metaphor that works but i'm curious what your thoughts are tom on on uh male sexual energy as a as a force in the world and 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 if there's anything you know that you think of as interesting or problematic or you know how you've dealt with it as a as a life force, let's say. Well, I've never really th- thought too much about it, but of course, lately, it's the main topic of conversation, and um, I'm rethinking the way I've been, the way I relate to women, and I think it's m- much more sensitive now, and uh, we all have to be more careful. Uh, when I was young, I had. Uh, well, my girlfriend would come to my gallery, a uh, little Catholic girl, and I got her pregnant. I didn't even know she was pregnant. And I'm sure I was emotionally unavailable for her. And her folks banished her to Seattle to have the baby, put it up for adoption. I mean, I look at the way I was, and I'm ashamed that I was not more available for the, many women, and that woman in particular. So I think that... Uh, as men, we need to be much more sensitive and um, be aware of, of what we're doing. Um, and we also started out talking about these children that are united here for the first time ever, because you learned of two children. Now you're 80, a four score, and, and, and tell the story of the other. The first child was born of the first time you ever had sex, and then you just recently learned of two more. Can you tell those two stories sure. of how they came yeah, about? Yeah, the, the second child was um, I was living in Venice on Ironsides on the Marina Peninsula. The girl across the street had a little girl. She be- uh, Her name was uh, Sherry Drummond. She became my girlfriend, and um, we had a great affair for six or eight months. We separated very happily, uh, and we, we were friends for a long time. And she married a man from Newport Beach. They had a child. Uh, then after she had that child, she came to see me one last afternoon in Venice at my at my apartment across from the Ir- Irwin Hotel. And we had sex, and she got pregnant. And she never told her husband. She never told her son. And she told me later that I had a son named Sasha. That's all I knew. S- years go by, and I kind of wonder what's ever happened to Sasha, but I had no idea how to reach him or anything. Somehow, along the way, Sherry had left her husband and she'd come to visit me. And I sent her a letter after she visited. I said, wonderful seeing you. And on the bottom of the letter, I said, does Sasha know I'm his biological father? She kept the letter. Subsequently, she died. Her husband died. All the members of the family died. And Sasha inherits the house. And he's going through the, the garage and he's throwing things out. And he comes upon this letter. And he's just about to throw it away, and it says, does Sasha know I'm his biological father? 
And it's the first time in his 44 years he realizes that this man, Abe Lopez, was not his father. Yeah. So he doesn't know what to do. He waits two months. He can't, he can't process it. He finally calls me. I'm at Mona's apartment house in Venice, and I get this phone call. Tom, this is Sasha, Sherry's son. And I just got goosebumps. And I think, oh, my God. I said, I wondered about you. How did you find me? I've been wondering if I'd ever get this phone call for 44 years. And he tells me where he is. I drive to Long Beach. I see him at Starbucks. He walks in the door, and he's tall, good-looking, mm. great smile. Yeah, they look beautiful. the same. Yeah. And it's my <laughs> Yeah, son. they do look like. very similar. <laughs> they both have these big, white-tooth yeah. smiles. So that's one son. Complete miracle to find him. The chances of finding him were so slim. Yeah. Just that one letter. That one line and one letter. The other f- child is Nancy, Crazy. who was dear Judas' uh, uh, child, the one that the Catholic schoolgirl that would come up to my gallery and that was banished to Seattle to have the child. And um, she ends up finding me through 23andMe, the gene testing. And then I get a call from her. And that's another goosebump call. And I think, oh, my God, totally unknown. I had no idea that I had a child from Judith. Mm-hmm. And that there she was. So miracles happen. So you didn't know that Judith was pregnant? No. Uh, this, no, this was total news. She wasn't your first girlfriend. That's someone else. Yeah. Right. This was just a young oh girl that would God. come to my gallery, Catholic schoolgirl in her little Catholic uniform. Wow. A little plaid skirt. Is she I wonder still if there's with anyone us? else out there. She died. She died. Yeah. I, have you done the 23 of me? Because this, this was through. I did. So so are you are you are you now just ready for the, the, the floodgates of open? Maybe there's a few more <laughs> that show up. That's it. You obviously have very uh I think you're very that, fertile. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sperm count very high. Yeah, off the charts. One thing I didn't mention was my profound experience with yoga and the uh, world of yoga. I came here to Maui 25 years ago <clears throat> to do a workshop with Patabi Joyce. I hadn't heard who he was, but somebody told me that he was doing a workshop here in Maui. I came here, I fell in love with yoga, I fell in love with him, Uh, he was a wonderful teacher, 85-year-old man, and I fell in love with the yoga community here. Mm. I ended up going to India and spending a year studying with him, and that profoundly changed my life. Uh, It was a phenomenal experience where I was able to have one year alone without women, without libido, without um, distraction, celibate totally, and I was able to dream. I would go to my friend's photo booth machine. I had an Indian or a Muslim friend that had a photo booth machine. I'd go to his uh, Photoshop and take photos of myself each day, and then at night I'd have them sewed into a a journal by a a wonderful man that had a sewing machine. And at each night I'd dream and I would do drawings on my photo Mm. pictures. So this was a profound time for me to experience, um, like Joseph Campbell said, the hero's journey. Going to the edge of the world, dying and coming back reborn. And that's basically what I did. And I think these pictures demonstrate that. Tom, do you have any advice for young people just getting started in, in art and business? Sure. And, uh, 
Lots of advice. Give us a little wisdom. Well, number one, as I learned from my friend Rubach, never make anybody wrong. Mm. That's been a real goal for me. If somebody cuts you off driving, you don't shout at them, give them the finger. You love them. The Buddhist approach, mm. never make anybody wrong. Look at the beauty in every person. Uh, that's my major advice. Stay healthy, eat well. Um, what about structure and like rituals and stuff like to keep productive? Like you, you're such a master of productivity. Is that just, you just follow your impulses and inspiration or do you have a regimen that you I recommend? Like regiment. I like regimen. I like to see movies every Monday night with a group, sitting upright in a chair, not laying in bed, watching a video screen and then falling asleep. Mm. I think that's the worst way to see a movie. Mm. I like to see a movie sitting upright and looking at it and talking about it afterwards. Respectfully. Uh-huh. I like to uh, have a swim club where we meet regularly and swim in the ocean. We'll all do that Sunday, tomorrow. Um, and I, you know, I have, I have a lot of people that are encouraging me to eat well and to sleep well. Mm -hmm. um, and you've created a community of love around you. Yes. That, that seems yeah. something that's primordially yeah. important to yes, us. Yes, it is. Yeah. No stress. I don't want any stress. Yeah. So I'll do anything to avoid stress. Yeah. <laughs> and commitment, it seems like, because for someone who's been so, like, you know, had lots of lovers and all of this, now you're married all this time. What's your, what's your uh, take on, like, monogamy and marriage and commitment versus somebody who just goes from one person to another? Ooh, what's, I have... Uh, <laughs> I have absolutely, I love other women, but I have no interest in any kind of sexual relationship. I'm extremely happy with my wife. And, um, so you, you think, do you recommend repressing that other desire or you just think when the right person comes along, you don't have that desire anymore or? or I think when the right person comes along, the desire for all those conquests and all those relationships slip away. And you realize, I mean, what I have is so rich and so beautiful and so sensitive and so enjoyable i would not jeopardize that for anything and and it took you to at age uh, what 50 something to discover that <laughs> we got some time left yeah. <laughs> no, i'm just kidding <laughs> Maybe eighties. Uh, my, my dad settled down in his seventies. Yeah, yeah. I had two more children. One at seventy. One at seventy-three. And I remember when I was like so scared of because he was quite old when he had me even, and I was always afraid of him dying. And and I would ask him, you know, Papa, are you are you afraid of death? And he's like, No, no, I'm not afraid of death at all. You have nothing to worry about. Uh, I, I was eleven years old, and he said, I, I do. I hate the idea of being hooked up to machines or anything like that. Yeah. So just, son, as long as I can get a hard on, keep me alive after that. Just <laughs> pull the plug, Back please. The yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're, we we, we haven't mentioned uh, your friend W.S. Merwin, who lived up the road, I guess. Yes. Um, he wrote one of my absolute favorite poems, which I've read on this podcast probably half a dozen times which over the years. Which one was that? For the anniversary of my death. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Um, and it reminded, last night I was thinking about it and how in some ways it aligns with your work in the sense that that poem is full of negatives. It's, it's finding beauty in the absence of yes. life. It's, yes. 
you know, the, the uh, like a beam from a lightless star yes. I'll set off across the universe or hearing the rain cease and the wrens stop singing. Yes. You know, it's all about the beauty in the absence. And I was thinking, obviously, watching Enigma last night and you finding beauty in a place that seems devoid of beauty somehow. W.S. Merwin had a huge influence on me. He recently died. But he and his wife were, were two of my best friends here. They lived nearby. They had about an 18-acre parcel of land that was full of palm trees. We'd have dinner often. In fact, later life, we'd go every Friday night and bring Mer- uh, William dinner mm-hmm. And after his wife died. And uh, we had a deep, wonderful friendship. He always called me very original and I never really had an education. I mean, I, I don't remember anything from high school and very little from college, practically nothing. William had an amazing education, very young scholarship to, to Princeton, and um, he'd remember everything, the poems that other people had written, he had a good relationship with Sylvia Plath and Hughes. I mean, the man was remarkable. So knowing him was like having a college education because he taught me about Shakespeare, about Blake. He taught me about Mm. all these different poets. And um, for some reason, he liked us very much. Mm. Michelle and I kind of sometimes laugh. We consider ourselves fairly shallow next to him. But we had a really marvelous relationship. And um, so many, he enriched my life so many ways. Uh, one example is when he was a, a appointed poet laureate of America, the New York Times was going to send out a photographer, and he said, why don't you just have Tom Sewell shoot me? Mm. So the New York Times called and said, would, would you be willing to work for us? And so I've been photographing for them now since then. Oh. It's been wonderful to have that connection with the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. Um, he just has enriched completely my life in the way I look at literature and poetry. Uh, I was very blessed to meet him later in, in, in later life. Yeah. Do you, uh, one last question I have. You were in the front page of the newspaper yesterday, this great article talking about you and your work. And, and of course, people often talk about achieving immortality through their work. There's something about art, which is always about, you know, preserving, right? And you are obsessed with preserving your work, you have an archive that's the most extensive I've ever seen in my life of videos and photos and millions of slides and all of this stuff. And you're obviously pretty obsessed with preserving yourself because you take such good care of your body and everything. What is your relationship to uh, the opposite of that, to, to decay and destruction and, and death? And uh, do, you, do you think it just needs to be put off as much as possible? Or, or is there some sort of, are you actively engaging with it through all this it's a good question. It's a very good question. I don't know. I often talk about it with my wife. What, what am I doing? Why am I so incredibly obsessed with what I'm doing in my life and my dreams and my journals and my photographs? I don't fully understand it. It's a strange sickness in a way. It's a strange disease I have maybe. I don't know. Um, I'm just not sure, but I find it comes so natural to me to make these records, to to make books of my friends, to make uh, movies about my mother who had Alzheimer's. And I filmed her for seven years from the moment her mind started to go until she died. Um, my friend Rubach, I, I, I 
wrote down all of his quotes, everything that he said for seven, 17 years, and I published a book of just his sayings. I don't know what it is. I really don't. Do you fear losing it if there was a fire that burned it all down or or sickness? Like, what, What's your relationship to the... The opposite of preservation, let's say. Are you are you afraid of it, or th- are no, you or you think afraid. like things happen? I'm and not that's afraid. Okay? I think the Buddhists have it down pat. When they look at dead bodies and they they look at dead things and they're thinking about it all the time, we're always aware of how fragile things are and how fragile our life is. We're here for just a short period. I'm always thinking about that. Um, it's a good question. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I think about that in terms of uh, Carl Jung a lot. You know, that was a guy who obviously was very wise and very keyed into how transitional life is, transitory, and and yet he kept extensive records of everything. Yes. You've seen the Red I, Book. I've got his Red Book. I've got his his dreams. Yeah, and you're you're sort of uh, siblings in some sense in, a way, in that yes. obsessive. Um, and not only recording, but recording with style. And, yes. Oh, uh, he certainly had it. Didn't oh my he? God. Yeah. Incredible detail. But I see. I, I I hear what you're getting at because in my case, like I've always, like I don't have children largely because I feel like life's too short in a way, and I'm just visiting. I'm just passing through. Mm-hmm. I never wanted to put down roots. I never owned a house. I never owned land. I've never owned anything. Um, or a car, even. He's the opposite of us. Yeah, yeah. But I think, it, but it's this. I'm responding to the same thing you are, just differently. Sure. I feel. <laughs> sure. Like I don't know. Like I've maybe I've accepted or embraced oblivion. And I hear you are doing this podcast, but I guess it's more of a transitory yeah. thing in the sense of like. It is something, it's not something, it, it, you're probably more interested in the process of recording and the process of people listening to it than having the, like, Tom and I, if we were doing this, it'd probably like be nice, like it having it organized. on the shelf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I, I yeah. assume iTunes is archiving it somewhere, <laughs> you know, it's off in the in the ether. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. This has been a real honor for Thank me. You. Not just this podcast, obviously, Thank but, you. but being included in, Thank in this event. Thank you. Very Happy much. birthday, Tom. <laughs> okay, Mom. Uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts: "Sex at Dawn," "Civilized to Death," "Vanthropology," "Tangentially Speaking," "Paleo Modern," and "Talking Out of My Ass." <laughs> She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. They're all civilized to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation 
station Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground 